0: I'm Gabby Logan, and this is the I.I. Family Money Show. In each episode, I speak to a famous face about the role money has played in their family life and professional success. I'll also get some practical tips from an expert to help you get to grips with your finances. In this episode, I speak to the legendary goalkeeper Peter Schmeichel. Peter spent eight glittering seasons at Manchester United, winning five league titles, three FA Cups, and most memorably, the Champions League as captain in Barcelona in 1999. He also enjoyed stints at Sporting Lisbon. Aston Villa and Manchester City and memorably won the European Championship with Denmark in 1992. Now he's a global ambassador for United and has just released his autobiography One. When I spoke to Peter from his home in Denmark, he told me what it was like personally and financially when he moved from Bromby to Manchester United, how he's advised his son, the Leicester City and Denmark goalkeeper Kasper Schmeichel and the principle he applied to his money he earned throughout his career. Peter, it is great to see you and uh, having a chance to speak to you as well. Having read your biography, One, um, I feel like I know so much more about you. And I already felt like I knew a lot about your career. It's a fantastic book. You must be really, really thrilled.
1: Yeah, well, I am. It's so well written by Jonathan Northcroft. I've provided context and, and, you know, a lot of the stories, of course, came from me and I think is journalistic skills has uh, added so much to it so I'm very very proud of of the book and I'm very happy with uh, with the end result and uh, and and the good thing is you know you you try you try to do something like that where you open up you really open up and I haven't really done that never in my life really and Mm. actually never ever in my life um you've done strictly so you know you have the cameras all the time and and you know you get interviews interviewed every day and at some point you have to tell you tell your viewers a little bit about yourself and so on. and i always held back a little bit with that so this is my first attempt to sort of be out there and be be honest about and and the reception has been fantastic
0: Well, I think what it does, it explains a little bit about your past and your family's past that kind of, you know, helps maybe understand how you became the kind of sportsman you were with the the reputation for this unbelievable competitiveness and this fierce determination. So without kind of going into too much detail, one of the things that I found so fascinating was your father and his background as a spy. I mean, mm. even saying that sounds incredible, doesn't it? So just give us a little potted version because family, this is a family money show. And so we're going to learn a little bit more about, you know, your family's background, but tell us a little bit about his background.
1: Well, so my father was born in Poland and he met my mother in, in Poland uh, in the late 50s. And uh, they, my mother came like five or six times and they fell in love. They got married there uh, and she, she then became pregnant. Uh, and said to my father, "Well, I'm going to go back to Denmark, have this child here, and uh, uh, I see you there. Make your own way." Uh, and back then, of course, uh, it was a Cold War, the height of the Cold War. You couldn't just move from from east to west. So he attempted, tried everything that he possibly could. My father, he was a musician, so he was like a culture person. He was a you know, he was by no means he was not a soldier. He was so far away from being that, but they forced him to. Um, to uh, to become a spy and that was the only way that he could leave Poland and 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 get to Denmark and uh, of course being that person being that you know uh, an artist if you like mm. he, he had no clue what to do he had he had been trained but no clue what to do when he came to Denmark so what he did was he uh, he reported himself to the authorities as soon as he came to Denmark and um, they then recruited him to uh, to counter spy so he was a double agent, if you like. Honestly, this is one of those, I can't for the life of me think about anything that he could have spied on, anything of value that he (laughs) could have passed on, but there you go.
0: He wasn't a very useful spy, but he was a spy. (laughs) So he was a musician and your mum was a nurse. And so, you know, he was obviously doing his his piano playing in various social settings. And and your mum and nurse is not I would imagine a house that was awash with money. Um, did you feel as no. a kid that things were kind of always a little bit tight?
1: No, I, 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 think it was, um, I think we were quite comfortable. We, we, we were not. I mean, we didn't have a lot of money or, you know, extra money to do all kinds of extra things. We were four kids, you know, there's a lot of mouth to feed and clothes and stuff like that. But we were comfortable. And I think it was very much how it was at mm-hmm. that time and how everybody mm-hmm. else around us, they were, we didn't think about money as, you know, something that we, uh, we should thrive at, you know, we should, that, that getting, you know, being rich or whatever would make you more happy. It was just the way it was. And, um, I, I mean, I obviously in this, I've had to look backwards and really, really think hard about uh, everything that I could remember and, you know, one of the things you, you have to ask yourself is, was your, was your upbringing, your childhood, was it okay? Were, were you happy? You know, were were your parents, were the good parents? Did they help you? Did they support you? And I could not find any fault. I, I was a happy kid. I developed in, in the way that I developed because of uh, the opportunities that were presented to me. Um, but it wasn't like I could go and say hey, to my father I, I need some money for, for this and that. And he just gave it to me because that kind of money wasn't around.
0: No. So it was the more the support and feeling that you had a really great grounding to be able to go on and do what you wanted to do. Mm. So who was, who was the person that was able to reach out to you from a footballing point of view and give you encouragement? Was that coming from the
1: home? Not really. Not really. Uh, I was supported from home, absolutely supported. Uh, but the nature of my parents' work, which was uh, predominantly uh, late afternoon, early evening, and then, of course, for my father also into the night, uh, meant that we had different, different uh, times during the day that we were awake at. Um, and and but my mother would always, if she could, she would come and watch me play. And it was literally, I mean, it was from the kitchen window, it was 100 meters. So it wasn't that far away. Um but uh, I, always, I always felt incredibly supported by, by my family and by my parents, especially. Uh, and also, as I, got, I grew older and I, did, I decided that I was going to be a professional football player, which was not a career at the time in Denmark. Nobody was a professional footballer in Denmark at the time. Uh, to play, just to give you an example of what the times were like, to play for the national team, you had to be an amateur. So if you play for a club abroad and got paid for it, you could not play for the national team. So that, that, that's, that was what it was like. But I was so determined and they could see that determination in me and they supported that. But in terms of the footballing world, I, I, I think I was quite talented and it was quite evident. And so whoever worked with me, whoever was my coach, supported me along the way. And of course I, I get I say this in the book. I I I got to uh, my first sort of semi professional club and there was a guy there called Johan Henriksen who kind of became he was he became my goalkeeping coach, but he also became sort of a mentor in in a way. And he he then followed me to Bromby and the national team. And uh he he outlived me in the national team, by the way. So he had it's funny because he ended up also coaching Casper for a very brief period of time. So, uh, but I think he, if anybody, he was probably the most important person because he was, he was so, he was so into the. So he was look. He would be looking at me, um, and he would he would sort of guide me towards being a certain kind of, a certain type of goalkeeper. So you know, goalkeeping, so many different things, and it, you know, very much depending on on the goal or the team that you're playing in. So how do you how do you provide the best for your team? He was very, very good at at, at pointing me in that direction. So once I was that, then you know, I, I had the I had some input in how the team was playing. Alex Ferguson called you the bargain
0: of the century. You cost just over half a million pounds, I think, didn't you? Um, There might have been add-ons to that. But um, that sounds ridiculously good value now. Was it even then, did you feel that you had gone for a, a huge amount of money or did you feel that, you know, that perhaps was not quite what you were worth?
1: Do you know, Gabby, if I'm honest, it's a money show. But if I'm really, really, really honest, it's, it's never, ever been about money for me. It could never be about money. It was something else I wanted. And I always said, if I do that and I progress and I develop and I work hard and I take step, step, step by step and I, I, I work myself up the ladder, the money will be there anyway. So why, why spend time focusing on money? And I also said, you know, on days where, where you're negotiating uh, for a job, a contract or whatever, you, I fight like hell to get the best contract that I could possibly get. But once a contract is signed, I put it to one side. I never, I I, I can absolutely guarantee you this is the truth. I have never, ever looked at my contracts once it was signed. I didn't care. I cared about playing, I cared about, you know, being the best that I could I cared about winning
0: and coming from Bromby to Manchester United right and you've just explained there that you know when you started out being a professional footballer wasn't even a thing suddenly you're going to this place that you previously described as Disneyland when you'd first gone to Manchester United because there they all were your heroes walking around these players that you loved from afar how do you change your mindset when you go there and suddenly not only are you there as a valuable acquisition, you're the man, you're the number one. You've got to kind of, you know, be one of the leaders.
1: From playing the last game at Brumby, we always played into June uh, because of the weather. And, and then to the first day at Manchester United, I think it was about three weeks. And there was a very, very small period of those three weeks where I kind of got one of them thoughts where like, ooh, am I, am I good enough? am i taking too big a step ahead you know am i good enough and i decided that i i was probably good enough so once i arrived at at, at old trafford oh it wasn't old, but it was the cliff training ground for my first training session i've already made my mind up that i was good enough to be here but having said that my my um my first day in training i was the first one in the dressing room and i had all all my luggage i came directly from denmark i was supposed to move to england all of my luggage, all of my clothes, it was in back. I mean, I filled half the, the dressing room up with my back And it was quite small, uh, the dressing room. And I'm sat there on my own. And then they enter one by one by one by one. And the last one to come in was Brian Robson, who was... I mean, for me, it was... He was God. I mean, God is entering the dressing room. And I didn't know that. But his place was just right next to mine. I mean, that was... That was obviously a big moment for me because I was now part of his world, but also a little bit intimidating, I had to say, because God was sat next to me.
0: (laughs) And you are now one of his disciples. (laughs) I am,
1: and I'm proud to
0: be. (laughs) So when you go into an environment like that and and winning uh, clear, it's clear from the book, it was clear from the outside to all of us watching in that era. Winning is just everything. It's so important. It's such a competitive environment. You've mentioned that signing the contract, you didn't think about money anymore. So who was thinking about those things in your life? How did you make sure that you know those things were taken care of?
1: So to be honest, I didn't have anybody. So of course I had an agent who, who helped me with the contract and he was trying to to also help me get organised. Uh, Moving from one country to the next is not a simple thing. Different tax rules and uh, you know deals between the countries in terms of how they deal with surplus and all that in terms of tax and where, where are you domiciled and all these kind of things. I didn't know anything about that. He kind of knew a little bit about it, and then um, we tried to sort of we try yeah exactly we tried to organize me. In the way that we thought that I should have been I should be organized
0: because in football by definition you know you get these young guys suddenly mm. loads of money comes into their life and some make some very bad decisions, yeah. some make some good decisions. you must have seen all sorts of experiences going on around you with levels of kind of spending that was out of control or people who just didn't put their money in the right place
1: I, I think we have to we have to add time into this so so, I am right at the beginning of the Premier League, so the money was was increasing, yes, but it wasn't anything like what it is now, so yes, young players were were making relatively to what to what they came from a lot of money um but in in my football club, we never saw anybody who sort of Completely went mad because we had a manager who uh, who well he this is again i mean this 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 is why he was so successful. He knew everything, he controlled everything, uh, he was leading you towards what was important, and he was cutting all the un- unimportant stuff away. I gave you a great example.
0: Let's say his name, just in case anybody listening doesn't know we're talking Sir about Sir Alex Ferguson. Ferguson. <laughs>
1: so we 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 came back from uh from uh we came back for preseason training and there was a player in the squad and I won't mention his name, but there was a player in the squad who had a t- he had a tattoo in his summer holiday. It went like a wildfire around the club. Oh, he's had a tattoo. And and you know. Everyone wanted to have a look at, we, we actually in, in this facility, we've got somebody with a tattoo, you know, that <laughs> one, one player with a tattoo. So that seems so crazy that, that was, now, doesn't it? <laughs> exactly. That was another player, a very young player who, uh, who came in to training in a, uh, it was a BMW 318i convertible. So a nice car. But absolutely nothing like what the players are driving now. The manager saw this, saw the player, went up to his office, phoned the mum up, and said, Make sure he sells the car this afternoon. You know, he did not allow people to do all this crazy stuff. Uh, and of course, you get to a point that squad. Squats are, you know, being bigger and the money is, is so much more and you bring in, you know, people from very many different countries and different cultures. And uh, and at some point, you kind of lose control over over that. Uh, and I think that happened, you know, to him, to to, um, to us in Wenger, you know, all of these, you know, long serving managers. I
0: was chatting to Jürgen Klopp the other day and he said when he was 40, he was much more controlling. Players weren't even allowed to take a phone call on the bus. He said now they're FaceTiming their kids on the bus and he said, as long as they win, I don't care. Yeah. It's like he's got to manage different cultures and that's what they expect yeah. to do and you know, it's, it's a different kind of relationship now.
1: It's, it's what it is. It's, um, it, it also, it's what makes it so difficult to, to envision yourself inside of the sport. Because it's changed so much, it is. I mean that. So I've been out of the sport for eighteen years now. I have the education to to, to do any kind of job in football. I always stop myself uh, because that gap that's that's been created from 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 when I left football and up until now. That's a very very difficult gap to uh, to uh, to bridge. It is. Uh, I have, of course, a son who is right in the middle of it now. So, you know, I, I I hear ins and outs, and I I've got an understanding of of how how a dressing room functions now. But I I mean, I don't think I don't think it's an easy task for us uh, who who's been living the game. It might be for somebody else who's never been in a dressing room to go in and see things in a different in a different way, and and then. But for us who spin through something, I think that's really difficult.
0: You've mentioned Casper a couple of times. So I want to talk about his his success, actually, and in relation to yours, because there's a beautiful story in the book about in the '99 Champions League final, how his uh, him and uh, Teddy Sheringham's son, Charlie, appeared in the dressing room. And you were like, how the heck did they get in here at the end of the match? Uh-huh. And he, I've seen footage of him playing with the ball at Old Trafford in the corridor with various players' kids when he was eight, nine years old. And... It is so rare that a top sportsman like you actually has a son who is able to emulate his career almost identically playing for his country, playing in the Premier League, winning uh, Premier League titles. How did you, as a father, keep him hungry?
1: The most important thing for me when it came to my my children and, and, and their choices was that they, cho- they their, their picks was for something that would make them happy. I had never had... Even to this day, I don't have any ambitions on their behalf to become superstars or I want them to wake up happy every morning, doing something that they really like, looking at their family with love. And, you know, and they wake up every morning thinking this cannot be any better. That's the most important thing. So with Casper, with uh, obviously, he was 16 years when, um, when he decided to, to have a go. I felt it was really important that we we right from the beginning, uh, kind of got our roles sorted out. So, how did he see me in this his new career of his that wasn't a career at the time? Would um what what was the expect the expectations that he had to me? Should I be his coach? Should I be his advisor, mentor, or his father? And what we agreed on right from the beginning was that I was going to be his father and just his father, and if we wherever to talk about his football, not football, but his football, it had to come from him. He had to come. I could never come and say, ah, oh, you should do, or, and I think for 95% of, of that period, since he was 16 until about now, I think we've been very successful with that. And of course, once, once they won the, uh, the Premier League, uh, a lot of things started to change for him. And then, and then of course, in the period after that, um, you know, it's, it's com- he's completely he's completely erased his dad from his career, <laughs> and I don't think he can achieve much higher than that. If I'm honest, I think that mm-hmm. is some that is some achievement. That and I'm very very pleased with that. It, it annoys me, of course, when I see a headline says Schmeichel this, and I'm looking, whoa, I'm, oh, it's not me saying. No. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't annoy me at all. But it's uh-huh. it, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant
0: it doesn't seem like spending money kind of in a you know in a very kind of uh, lavish way was was a big deal for you you weren't interested in those kind of material kind of benefits from from football so what did you enjoy kind of treating yourself to through this career of yours
1: i think when we most people start to make a little bit of money there're always something that you will buy and you will buy like a disease you'll buy more and more so with me coming from this musical background i uh i developed in my house a, a recording studio and i had i was um i quite often after training went into uh into manchester to a music shop which doesn't exist anymore unfortunately it was called a1 uh and all the guys in there they were they were musicians um and it it was brilliant. It was absolutely it was like paradise for me and to talk to these guys and oh have you seen this new piece of kit, you know? And I'm like and yeah, yeah, okay, that's fine, I'm not buying it. And then uh, and two days later I've been thinking so hard about this new piece of kit <laughs> which I had absolutely no idea how, how it works <laughs> you know, how to work it. But I needed it. It was it was like a craving, I had to have this. So I had a full recording studio in my house and I never recorded anything. But what it did for me, <laughs> what it did for me, it took me away, completely away from football. Mm-hmm. And I, I really needed that. I needed, because I, I think if I hadn't had anything else, if I hadn't had music, I, I think I would have been so intense that I, I wouldn't have any people around me. I don't think I could have been around, I'd be a person that you could be around. So music was brilliant. And, and I had days after a game, Three o'clock at Old Trafford. I would probably be home by seven. We have some dinner. The kids would go to bed, uh, and I'd go out and just you know wind down. And then I'm um, I'm thinking, okay, I better go to bed. And I come out. It was in the garage, right? In my garage. I come out, and it's light. It's six o'clock in the morning. Time's just gone. And and for me. For me, that was really, really important that I could have something that just took me so far away from from uh, from football and the pressures that that uh, that being a, a football player brings.
0: And so, um, in terms of uh, going forwards in your life now, obviously you're a broadcaster and a writer, and you've got a, a multimedia interest. Do you kind of see this obviously it's a very different income stream isn't it to what you had as a footballer and perhaps not quite as as regular do you work now because you love work or do you work because you feel like you need to keep earning how does how's the mindset
1: I think it's a mix of both I think it is um I'm only 57 I think it's far too early to uh, to chuck it in and I in I think again we we um I have two periods of my life that, that I can draw experiences from. The first one is, of course, the moment I retired from football. And then even though I had stuff to do, uh, I did football focus for, for for a year. It was only one day uh, during the week. Uh, so I very quickly learned that I needed more purpose. I needed more uh, responsibility and I needed to be needed more as well. So I, I took on a lot an awful lot and and I found myself at some point uh, overworked simply did too much so I found a really good balance and then then of course time goes it's as I said before it's 18 years and you find yourself um at a time in your life I made very big changes in my life when I was 50 I got divorced I I you know I met somebody else and suddenly I'm married again and a lot of things that were not planned, but massive, massive changes. I speak to Casper about this as well, um, because is now 35, so I didn't have anyone to talk to when I was approaching this time of my career that he's in now. Uh, I was very much left to to my own accord in finding finding my way. Uh, so, so I want Casper to draw from my experiences and and understanding. How important it is that when it stops, something that you will never be able to do again is gone. It's the best thing you will ever, ever do in your life.
0: Well, I think what you say there will resonate not just with ex-sports people or sports people who are coming to the end of the line, but there'll be a lot of people listening who have done very well in business and maybe at the age of 40, you know, possibly could retire. But actually, it's thinking about, what what are you going to do next? Because you can't just sit there... All day long, and spend your money. You know, there's a, there's a time, you know, for doing that. But then it's how to plan, not just for your retirement, but for, for financially, but also physically. What are you going to do?
1: Well, exactly. You know, how many boats can you buy, and you know, how many cars can you drive at the same time, and how many rounds of golf can keep you motivated for life?
0: Quite a few, with you, I think, isn't yeah. that right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, but I would say to these guys who made so much money that they can retire at the age of 40. You know, spend some of that money on something completely different. Invest in something completely different. So a lot of rich guys now investing in football clubs. Because, you know, business is kind of boring, isn't it? You've done it, been there. <laughs> but football, you know. Just... Would, you, would, you, would you invest in a football club? Yes, if I had the money, absolutely yes. I would. I would love to do that. I'd love, honestly, I would love.
0: Would you Would you invest in Manchester United as they currently are?
1: If I had that kind of money, absolutely yes. But but that's not that's not what I'm saying. I would love, absolutely love, to take the control of a football club and then develop it into what I think a football club should be what football should should be about. I'm a little bit, but that's a very, it's a longer, longer conversation. But I'm worried, I'm, I'm worried for football. I think we've mm. taken a wrong turn at, at, at some point and it's become much more, or far too much, about the elite and far too much about money.
0: Mm. It seems like it's, it's almost a churlish question to ask you whether you've made bad financial decisions or whether you've made great financial decisions because actually happiness and a balance in life seems to be the thing that comes through as the most important thing for yeah. you.
1: And obviously... And so, I, and so, honestly, really, and so it should be. it, it is at the end of the day, it's the only real value. That is that you wake up in the morning and you're happy with your life. You can be rich, like, you know, beyond your wildest dream. But if you're angry and not happy and you, you look to the person next to you and you think, what am I doing here with that person? And you look at the, and you're just unhappy with life, then what's the point?
0: Peter, thank you so much for your thoughts, your wisdom, your, um, your insight, uh, the stories that you've told us and sharing so much about your family as well. Uh, it's been really insightful and really enjoyable as well.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Gary. It's been a pleasure being on.
0: Okay, let's have a chat with Kyle Coldwell from Interactive Investor about specifically Kyle investing in sports teams and sports organisations. Um, what opportunity is there to invest in sports teams? We heard there that Peter would invest in a football club, and he knows where it can all go
2: wrong. <laughs> well, there are there are options available. Um, there's not a lot of football teams listed on the stock market, but there are some. Um, There's Manchester United, they're listed on the New York Stock Exchange. There's also um, Celtic, they're listed on the London Stock Exchange. Um, And then over in Italy, there's the likes of Juventus, uh, Lazio and Roma. And other European um, superpowers are the likes of Borussia Dortmund and Ajax. One of the qualities that football clubs have is that they have um, unique global brands, I'm one of the fund managers in Interactive Investors Super 60 list, um, Nick Train, who manages the Lindsay Train UK Equity Fund. He invests in um, Manchester United, Celtic and Juventus as part of that portfolio. And referring back to um, a previous episode in this podcast series, um, Jim O'Neill, Lord Jim mm-hmm. O'Neill, um, obviously you asked him about his, um, his takeover of Manchester United, which obviously didn't happen. And he mentioned that, um, that obviously Manchester United, uh, one of the strong things it has going for it is that it has got a unique brand. Mm-hmm. And from an investment perspective, that's a quality um, that you know would satisfy some investors. Um, and away from football, um, in F1, there's ways that um, investors can get exposure. Um, Ferrari, Aston Martin and Renault, they're all listed. Um, so investors can buy shares in them. And then also, um, you can also get exposure to, um, in the US, the New York Knicks, the basketball team, and also um, ice hockey's uh, New York Rangers.
0: And I guess you mentioned, Jim O'Neill, that we should talk about your heart and head when it comes to investment. A sporting club to some people is a very passionate, personal thing, isn't it? And so perhaps your head might not quite be as analytical uh, in that situation as it would be, say, with another investment and a different stock.
2: Yeah, it can be a pretty big investment mistake to let your heart rule your head, um, and that is um, something that if you are investing in a passion like you know a football club or another sport, um, that what can happen here is is that you can let your emotions get the better of you, rather than making um, rational investment decisions uh, based on sort of strong. Mm-hmm. and sound fundamentals.
0: Mm-hmm. And now I understand Carl you have an investment first 11. Is that right?
2: I do. I do. Um because the beautiful game has a lot in common with investing. Um in the world of investing there are professional fund managers. And um, these fund managers they invest in a certain number of companies that they believe will outperform a stock market. And these fund managers they compete against other fund managers. In league tables, so um, investors can see how well or badly these four managers are performing compared to competitors. So just like in um, just just like in football with football managers, if a professional investor is not performing well and is finding himself or herself towards the bottom of the league table over different time periods, then ultimately they can be sacked. Um, And also in common with football, when you're putting an investment portfolio together, it's important to strike the right balance. And um, this can be achieved by having a mixture of different types of investments, such as um, investments that are more defensively minded and also um, investments up up at the other end of the pitch that are more adventurous. (laughs) So you'd have your goalkeeper
0: would be very, very safe.
2: Yeah. Yes, it would. So the ultimate goalkeeper would be cash, um, due to the fact that cash is not exposed to the up and down movements that are inherent in stock market investing. Although the trouble is, at the moment, cash would not be a very good goalkeeper. And the reason why is because inflation is on the rise. um, And we just had the recent autumn budget in which um, the Chancellor, uh, Rishi Sunak, said that for 2022, inflation is expected to average 4%. Um, And and if your cash savings rate is below the rate of inflation, then that means that your capital is being eroded in real terms. In defence would be um, bonds. So um, bonds are less risky than shares over the long term. Um, Obviously, a main part of a defender's job for football is to stop the opposition scoring. And what a bond fund would do is limit losses as much as possible. And in our Super 60, one option that I'd pick out is the Jupiter Strategic Bond Fund. Um, This fund would form a solid bedrock as part of a diversified portfolio. In midfield, um, a central midfielder in football terms is the core and engine of the team. And as a Liverpool fan growing up, I uh, watched one of the greatest players ever play in that position, and that, that of course, is uh, Steven Gerrard. And so for a solid core holding in an investment sense would be a global fund, either one that is professionally managed or one that is passively managed, which are known as index funds or exchange trader funds. Um, in short, a passive fund gives you exposure to global stock markets, gives you exposure to own the world. And then in attack, um, that's where um, an investor could, could consider more adventurous options in pursuit of potentially higher returns. Um, but the thing to bear in mind is that, as with all strikers, these sorts of investments can fall in and out of form. Um, so in our Super 60 list, we have an, we have an adventurous investment category. And then one of those funds is the um, Mobius Investment Trust, which invests in stocks that are listed in emerging market economies. It has exposure to companies that are listed in the likes of India, Taiwan, uh, China, and Brazil. But um, these these sorts of investments, are not for the faint-hearted, so it's important to take a long-term approach and sh- well strap yourself in for the long-term. Thank you so much, Kyle. That was uh,
0: very good, thank you. Thank you, Gabby. Thanks for listening. If you've got time, please like and follow the II Family Money Show and leave us a review or rating in your podcast app. You can find loads of ideas on how to plan for you and your family's financial future at II.co.uk. I'll see you next time.